Thanks, Adam. I want to start just by thanking you for hanging in there with me the last two or three weeks. I've enjoyed the opportunity to, to speak, to preach, but I'm also looking forward to moving back down to the other end of the building with the junior high and high school students who many of you avoid, but you shouldn't because they have a lot to offer. So that's where I'm, I'm headed back to next week. But I have enjoyed this. I've also enjoyed opportunities to, to talk with you, and um, especially over this last week, I've had quite a few responses, and Allison has too, about my faith, short, faith story that I shared last week and about some of my struggle with doubt in the past and at times now. But one of the things that I, I wanted to share with you about that is not long after I went through that kind of difficult struggle with doubt, one of the things that came out of that as I, I worked through that in community with friends and, and with Allison praying for me and, and um, through continued discussion and looking at scripture, um, as I came out of that, one of the things that I realized was that I had closed myself off to anything new God wanted to do in my life. I was at a place where I thought this is what it's going to be like the rest of my life because I was happy with that. I was good with that. And God said, no, I have other plans. And so part of, part of, for me, stepping out in faith and attempting to do something new was accepting a phone call from a church that was looking for a youth minister uh, a little while later. And, uh, and I did that. I accepted that phone call, and I engaged in a conversation with Greenville Oaks. And I believe that had it not been for that experience of doubt in my life and that faith crisis, as I call it, I don't think I would be here today because I think I would have stayed closed off to God and in one place. Or God might have done it a different way, moved me somewhere in a different way. But I'm thankful that he did, and it's been a blessing to me. Um, so thanks, thanks for being, being there for us and with us these last few weeks and these last few years. I want to pray, and then I want to read the passage this morning. It's fitting, that, uh, it's fitting that today is Palm Sunday because the day where the world is thinking about Jesus the king coming into Jerusalem. We're going to read a story about the message of Jesus, the truth, the good news of Jesus going in to a new place and a challenging place. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that you don't give up on us when we, when we doubt or when we struggle, but you are there with us. And may we clearly see and hear today who you are as God, what you're wanting from us, but mostly what you want for us in our relationship with you. Father, may we hear your word. May our hearts and minds be open to your message for us this morning, both as a church and as individuals. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. That's where we'll begin. We're going to read verses 16 through 21 to start this morning. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. 
Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. The message, the truth of Jesus today is going into Athens. And while Athens isn't what it once was at this point, it's still a pretty great city. It's still that center for learning. It's the place where religion and education and culture all meet and thoughts and ideas about this all go out. And so there's Paul, as we've seen, week after week. Where's the first place he goes? He goes to the synagogue and talks to the Jews, and he talks to the God-fearing Greeks who are there, and he shares the message of Jesus with them. But also it says that every day, day by day, he went out to the marketplace and talked to those who were there. Now, who was there at the time? Who would have been in the marketplace? Well, to put it short, everyone. Everyone would be in the marketplace because, you see, that was the hub of life. That's where everything happened. Imagine artists and vendors and political leaders and temples and shops and theaters and philosophers and the people that just want to hear the gossip. Everyone is there because that's where life is lived. We don't really have anything like that in our world today. Um, I kind of picture it as the old town square you know, where you have the courthouse in the middle and maybe a playground nearby and then the best shops in town, everyone would go to get whatever they need down there. But even that is probably, probably falls short. We do have a marketplace today though, right? Y'all know where that marketplace is. It's the internet. It's mobile. It's, it's wherever your phone is. It's wherever your computer is. That's where the marketplace is. And so imagine, imagine if Facebook and Twitter and Amazon, and TMZ, and iTunes, and the Huffington Post, and a legitimate news source, and bloggers, and Craigslist, and Netflix all came together in one physical space where people would actually go and interact with each other, and talk, and live, and do all these things, and share. That's the marketplace. It is that important. It is that big. It is that much a part of the people's lives at the time. And it's also a place where ideas were shared. Um, and everyone loved to jump on the newest idea, the latest and greatest, whether it was a good idea or not. If someone had an idea and people could pick up on it, they would just follow it. Um, it kind of makes me think of like, like New Coke. It was a bad idea in the 80s, but it became this fad for a little while. Or parachute pants. Like who thought parachute pants were really a good idea? Some people, I think I probably did at that age because I probably wore some too, but there are no pictures of that. Um, <laughs> and you couldn't even jump out of a plane just wearing parachute pants. That doesn't make sense, right? But somebody thought that was a good idea at the time. Or for football fans, somebody thought the tuck rule was a good idea. And for a little while, maybe it was, but they decided this week, no, you know what? That's not a good idea. Let's get rid of it. There are these fads that people are, are going with and are following because they love the latest and the greatest. And we've done that in churches too sometimes. We will read a blog and say, oh, yes, that's it, that's it. That, that blog, that article right there, that's what it's all about. We just need to do that. Or we'll read a book. I remember, you know, eight, nine, ten years ago, the book Blue Like Jazz by Donald Miller came out. 
still one of my favorite books. It's a great book. But I remember at the time people reading it and saying, you got to read this. This is the best thing ever. And this is going to change the world. This is going to change the church. And maybe it did in some ways, but as time went on, um, it seemed like maybe just a fad. People got excited about it and then moved on to the next thing. So that's part of our life too. In the middle of all of this, all these ideas and thoughts and the art and everything, the culture, everything that's going on in Athens, in this marketplace, is Paul. Right in the middle of it all. And he's preaching the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. And isn't this Christ-like? Isn't this just like Jesus to be among the people? Because after all, who is Jesus? He's God in human form. It's Jesus, who left heaven to be with us among the creation. And it's Jesus who, while he was here on earth, didn't just stick with the religious leaders, but went to the people, even people that others didn't want him to be with. Jesus among the people, and that's what Paul is doing here, being among the people. But as he's among the people, he sees something. He sees idols. And it's not just that he sees these physical idols around the city of Athens as he's walking around and taking in the sights. It's not just that he sees the the statues and the inscriptions and the temples. It's that he sees that behind everything, behind all the culture, all the arts, all the commerce, everything in their lives was a way of seeing the world that goes against the truth of Jesus. These idols influenced everything about the people and their city and their life. Everyone had their own God, even for good things. If you like water, you have a God for water. If you like air, you have a God for air. Anything you like. If you like fishing, you can have a God for fishing. Anything you like or enjoy or believe in, you can have a God for that. And I'm sure people would be happy to make up more gods in that day. And as he sees this, as he sees what's underneath and what's behind all of this life in Athens, says he is greatly or deeply distressed. When it says this, what it means is he's filled with this holy anger because this is not the way it is and this is not the way it should be. But at the same time, he's filled with compassion for the people because they don't yet know the truth of Jesus Christ. He's filled with jealousy. We read in the Old Testament how God is a jealous God, and we like to impose our view of jealousy in relationships from maybe our teenage years onto that, and that's not really the picture of jealousy. It's more of a God who created us and knows what's best for us and wants what's best for us and is calling us back to himself and is willing to come after us. And Paul is experiencing that same feeling as he sees these people created in the image of God. He's jealous for them, but he loves them. He's courageous to stand in the marketplace and speak the truth, but he does it with gentleness. And that's why he's teaching, because he sees what's going on, because he's filled with this holy anger, and because he loves and is compassionate towards these people. And even as he shares his message, they don't completely understand. First of all, they call him a babbler. And they're not saying he was just going on and on, not making sense. What they're calling him is a seed picker. Like a bird would come and just pick up scraps of food that was left over. 
Well, they had people during that time who would go into the marketplace and they would listen to one philosopher for a little bit and then they would run to the other side of the marketplace and they would use that philosopher's idea as their own. They would plagiarize. Or they would listen to them and put little bits and pieces together and have some good sound bites, but they wouldn't really have any thought of their own. And that's what they're accusing Paul of. The other thing they're accusing him of is talking about foreign gods. And we can look at this in a couple of ways. We can look at it as, well, they don't know Jesus Christ yet. And that's part of it. But what they hear Paul teaching and saying is Jesus and resurrection. Jesus and resurrection. And these people don't know what resurrection is. So it's very probable that they're hearing him say Jesus and resurrection as two different gods, two new gods to their community, to their culture, which would be frowned upon. You can't just introduce a new God. You have to take it before the Areopagus, which is where he's about to go, and they have to decide whether your God fits or not. So they have this picture of Jesus and resurrection, his female counterpart, goddess, is what they're hearing. So obviously there's a misunderstanding, and the leading philosophers of that time are so intrigued and so concerned about what Paul is teaching that they invite him to speak at the Areopagus. These, this was the place, and these were the people who were the religious and educational leaders of the world, the most intellectual people. And Paul is going to have to go in there, and this is going to be the biggest stage he and the gospel have been on at this point. What he's going to do, as N.T. Wright puts it, he's going to go in and he's going to play a chess match against these different opponents. Have you ever watched someone who's like a master at chess where they may play several games at one time? And what they'll do is they'll, they'll have the opponents lined up at each board and they will come to the first board and they'll make their move and hit the clock. And they'll move to the next board and make their move and hit the clock. And they'll move to the next board and they'll just move from board to board, playing different games, but they're so good that they can play all these games at one time almost as if it's one big game to them. And that's what Paul's going to do. He's going to take on these opponents. And the two major opponents here, the Epicureans, who are good people, but they believe that if there are gods, they're distant. They're out there. They don't interact with human life. They're not around us. They don't have any, anything, any influence in what we do or say so the best we can do in their mind would be to live a life of pleasure. Now, this isn't being hedonistic or anything. It means doing, living in a way that causes the least amount of pain. So you don't fear. You do good things. You avoid extremes. You live quiet lives. You don't think about the big questions of life because they just drive you crazy. You just, you're present. You just live for today, stay to yourself, and all will be good. Now, I got to tell you, at the time, the Epicureans and the Christians kind of got lumped in together because both of them, since they believed that the gods were distant, they may not have gone and done as much worshiping in the temples as others. They also lived together in community, and they would write letters to each other, a lot like the Christians. So, so people would kind of put them in the same camp, but the difference being, and they, and they were good people, but the difference being that our God was not their God. The other group, and the most popular group, were the Stoics. We've heard of Stoicism and what it means to be Stoic. You've probably called someone that before. But to suppress emotion, to use reason and rationality to find happiness, that's what the Stoics would do. And they would find God 
or gods in everything. So this plant, God is in this plant, so we could worship this plant. God is in the chair, we could worship the chair. The clothes you have on, God's in the clothes, we could worship the clothes. Anything you see is God and we can worship it. So they kind of took the opposite extreme of what the Epicureans saw. Either way, Paul's going to go into this, this setting. And what's great, what's, what I love here, he's going to use their altar. He's going to use their language. He's going to use their art to make his point about the one true God and about Jesus Christ. So let's continue reading one of Paul's, perhaps his most famous sermon ever. Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. See, Paul recognizes that they are religious. They are devout in what they do. They may be misguided and misplaced in what they do, but he recognizes that they are religious. So he's going to give them kind of a tip of the hat and say, I can see that you're religious. I can see that spirituality is something that's important to you. So they have common ground to begin with. But then he uses their altar to an unknown God. Now, my guess is that this altar, since they had so many gods in that time. They probably figured, all right, we, have, we already have 100. There are probably another 100 out there that we don't know about or haven't thought of yet. So we're just going to build one more altar to an unknown God and cover our bases that way. Kind of a, a humble way of making sure they covered all their bases. But at the same time, acknowledging, you know what, even with all these gods, we don't really know. We're not really sure. And Paul uses that, and he comes in and he says, you know that altar to the unknown God? That's the God I'm going to tell you about. And you can imagine 
all the people in this place, all these intellectual people quieting down and staring at Paul, ready to hear more. Because this is going to be new. And he goes on to say that God does not live in man-made buildings. Think about it. He's standing on this hill, a little bit overlooking Athens. And across the way is what? The Acropolis, where the Parthenon sits. One of the most majestic buildings of that time, and really even now to, to see it. It's one of the most um, recognized buildings ever. And you can almost hear him say and, and see him as he tells these men, God does not live in temples made by men gesturing across the way to the temples that they've built. He goes on to say that from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. You see, the other thing about the Athenians, they're very proud people. They thought the world revolved around them because culturally, artistically, educationally, philosophically, no one was better than them. So they were the greatest. And now to hear Paul saying, you know what? It's not about you. It's about God. That's going to challenge them in their thinking a little bit. And then he goes on to say, God did this so men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So the idea of kind of grasping for God in the darkness, they would get that because, after all, they're not sure about all this stuff. Even though they have all these gods, they're not sure about it. But then he says, God's not very far from you. Who does that speak to? Who does that challenge? Challenges the Epicureans who feel like the gods are distant and far off. And then, of course, we've heard this before. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. He quotes two of their own poets that they would know, that they would recognize, who are not believers in God, but he's going to take their language and take their quotes and say, this is why we believe in God. Let me give you evidence. Even your own people recognize this, whether they believed or not. It's powerful. And he challenges their thinking. He gives them a new worldview and a new way to live. And of course, as normal, there's a mixed response. Some people can't get past this idea of resurrection. Some people want to hear more, but at a later time. And then there are some even prominent people, as we see everywhere the gospel goes, who choose to believe and follow Jesus. The message of the good news of Jesus has now begun to move into the minds and hearts of the intellectual world. And a lot of times we want to think that, or we hear people say that there's no room in the academic world. There's no room for intelligent thought to talk about God or to think about God, and I think that's wrong. I think that's very wrong. In fact, I think as Christians, we need to do what we can to learn more, to become more intelligent so we can interact with those in the world who have um, intellectual blocks to believing in Jesus Christ. But even at that, there are still people who will not be able to get past that. And what we see here is a clash of cultures, a clash of worldviews. When I say worldviews, I'm talking about the assumptions, the beliefs, the ideas, the values Underneath everything, the values that shape how we see things and how we live. 
And what's really cool is at the beginning of Acts, if we didn't know this story, we would see Paul, then Saul, and we would think there is no way he would be the one to come onto this stage. But look at what God has done through this. God has a way of, of doing things that we can't understand and using people that we don't necessarily understand. There are places in our culture where it seems the gospel is unwelcome, even today. And he uses some interesting people to communicate his message sometime. There's a group of guys that I think are influencing the world right now and influencing Hollywood. And well, I'll tell you what, just to give you an idea of who they are, um, let me show you this video clip. A camo limo? Sweet. Seba. Like it. Like it, Clint. That thing is like a bug life for rednecks. The redneck dream car, son. This is like the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. Pull inside. Let's look at this thing. In my world, you add camouflage to anything, it immediately becomes cool. Do we have any Duck Dynasty fans in here? We have a few. Yes. Um... About a year ago, these guys from Duck Commander, which my friend Cody knows a whole lot more about than I do, honestly, um, got their own reality show called Duck Dynasty. It's on A&E, and it's interesting because these guys are actually members of our heritage, our tribe. They're members at a Church of Christ in Monroe, Louisiana. In fact, one of the guys on the show is an elder at that church. And the end of every episode just about every episode, shows them sitting around a table with family and friends and praying together. And I think that's pretty cool. But it's really interesting the way that they've gotten the opportunity to interact with others through this experience. I want to show you a couple more video clips of an interview that took place at Oklahoma Christian just a couple of weeks ago. Wow, it's been great. Hey, I want to switch gears just for a second. Uh, Hollywood, in fact, the entire entertainment industry kind of has a real bad rap among people of faith, Christians like, like us. Uh, what, has, what is your experience or what is your view of the entertainment industry at this stage? Well, I mean, it was a little bit of a culture shock when the crew showed up from L.A. And you would think it was a culture shock for, for us, but it was more of a culture shock for them. Because they looked around, you know, we're out in the woods, we're in the water, uh, you know, we're singing songs uh, to God, and uh, it was just, it was a, I think it was a culture shock. I think they, they were a little concerned about, you know, showing our faith on national TV, but I think throughout this process they realized that when you're sincere and things are real, that's what people want to see, mm-hmm. and. Uh, might watch this interview. Well, I think you realize that God uses flawed people to spread the knowledge of his son. That's how this works. You know, you look at somebody like me, and, uh, you know, if people don't know who I am, they think I'm either, you know, homeless, a threat, or some country music singer. <laughs> but, you know, when you get a, get a grasp on the fact that God is using me to spread the knowledge of his son, what that does for everyone here, you realize that if he can use me, he can use anybody. Mm. So whatever you do in life, it becomes your platform for your faith. And that's what's kept us grounded throughout this whole process. When the TV people came down, 
one of the cameramen, I heard him say to another cameraman, I heard him say, this is going to tear this family apart. Wow. And, uh, you know, I was thinking to myself, well, you hadn't met my family yet because, you know, we're, we're not chasing fame or fortune because that's fleeting. So we want to, you know, announce to the world that we believe Jesus Christ is Lord. If there is a way to live eternally, we believe this is it. And we want to encourage as many people as possible to get on the trip with us. So it's the same for, for the people here. Wow. Whatever you do in life, it becomes a platform for your faith. I love how, how these guys and this family see that. To hear them talking about sincere, real faith, when people see the real thing, it makes a difference to them. How God uses flawed people like them, like Paul, like all of us, to share his message. And I love their priority. They have a, there's a, there's a poster up um, that the promoters put up about this show, and it says, money, family, ducks. And they cross out the money, and they put faith. Faith, family, ducks. That's their motto. Um, it's not about money. It's not about fame for them. And I love hearing that message. What would your order be? What's your motto? Mine doesn't include ducks, but it includes a lot of other things. Anything above God is an idol. And we have an American view of things, a popular worldview that's out there, not just American, but throughout the world. Whatever makes me happy, whatever way I can get to inner peace, just do that, no matter what it is. Just be a good moral person. You don't have to have a God. You don't need religion as a crutch. There are so many views out there. And the truth is, in America, we have a God or an idol for everything, too. And when I start reading this passage and I start thinking about idols in my own life, I've got to be honest that I have some, too. We all do. And I'll tell you here in Allen, one of the ones that challenges me and one of the ones that I've traps of idolatry that I fall into sometimes. I see every Saturday when I go out to the soccer field or to the basketball court or when I go to my kid's school or when I go to a high school football game. And that's the fact that at times we make our kids into idols. We wonder as we watch the landscape and culture change, why kids grow up and they choose not to follow Jesus. And I think it's in part because we have inadvertently told them that they're greater than God. And so it's a challenge to me as a father of young kids that I love my kids, but I can't put them above God. And that's a hard job sometimes. That's a fine line to walk. In fact, it reminds me, not too long ago, I don't remember which one. I, I think it was Madeline. I said, uh, my five-year-old, I said, uh, I often say, Madeline, you know what? I know, you love me. And one day she said, you don't love me most. I said, 
Well, <laughs> who do I love most? She said, God. Oh, yeah, yeah. It can be our kids. It can be our jobs. It can be money or time or sex or marriage or love or friends or intellect or food or sports or our freedom or even the church. Because, you see, we don't worship the church. The church was made to worship God. Anything above God is an idol. And like Paul says, we may need to repent. I know I do. So here are the big questions for us. Can we recognize idolatry when we see it? Can we recognize the worldviews that oppose the truth of the good news of Jesus when we see and hear them? Or have we grown so comfortable with our culture and its worldviews, its story, that we've allowed it to overshadow the story of God in our own lives. When we give our lives to Jesus, he changes the way we see everything, or he's supposed to, we're supposed to allow him to. Like the way that idols infiltrated every aspect of the Athenians' lives, we must allow the good news of Jesus to dictate every single part of our lives, big and small. And we're called to approach the world with holy anger, and compassion, with jealousy and love, with courage and with gentleness, so that the good news of Jesus may transform our lives and the lives of our family, our neighbors, our community, our church, our world. May we have eyes to see and ears to hear. May God reveal our idols to us so that we can live in him. May he forgive us of placing other things, even good things, above him. May he give us holy anger and compassion for our family, our neighbors, our world. And may we be light in this world, living and speaking the good news of Jesus.